Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. You are sitting in a room with dramatic lighting, by which I mean that there's like a pool of light on you, but in the background, there's all this dark and you look like a renaissance painting like what like uh the word chiaroscuro is coming to mind it's it's important to me that i'm easy on the eyes for you Mm. but i will explain why i i guess so um we have a little sound studio here it's the same place i always record with you except if i'm uh traveling um but uh, Matt Welch of the Fifth Column and Reason Magazine was in here yesterday, uh, taping the Megan Kelly show, which the film the uh, Fifth Column guys do every once in a while from the studio. He was the only one here. The other guys were remote yesterday, but I kind of set it up for him while you know they were kind of like testing, and um, I guess I set the lights up very fetchingly. So um, now I get to uh, bathe ah, in yes. it. Um, anyway, I'll, we'll put a link to that. I haven't listened to it yet, but he said it went really well. So. Um, yeah, she's fun. I've been on her show. She's a lot of fun. Obviously, she's somewhat controversial. Um, she got into it with Donald Trump that one time, and she was on. You know, people people think she's very conservative. Um, I guess her I have feelings on her. <clears throat> I have a real admiration for her toughness, but I sometimes feel like she is sensationalist or bait bait-ish in a way that she accuses the other side of being. You know, it could be, I don't, I don't really watch her that often, but I have been on her show and she is a lot of fun. I mean, she's and super pro at what she does. She just mm-hmm. makes it like, you're on her show for an hour. It feels like it's been two minutes. She's really, um, she's really pro and um, I appreciate her. She, she, she's a fighter too. So um, yeah, anyway. I like a feisty babe and I appreciate yep. that about her. Yep. Um, so good morning. I, I know the last time we checked it, it was 106 degrees where oh you Oh my were. God. Yes. <laughs> it has consistently been over 100 degrees here in Texas. It's funny because the last couple of years have been pretty mild. And so I was living under this like, oh, I think climate weirding, as they call it, is changing. And like the hot summers are going to be in Seattle or other places and Texas is going to be cooler. No, no, no. no. Do you remember 100 degrees every single day? Remember when we were kids and the cartoons, they'd have like the big giant fat person would go into one of those like um, steam boxes, like where just your head sticks out and then they'd come out all skinny. It was just that <laughs> cartoony stuff. But um, it's like that here in New York. It's just so freaking hot. I'm wearing like the smallest amount of clothing possible. I don't even want to wear shoes because it's just, uh, it's broiling. But um, we keep doing our work, Sarah Hepla, because that's, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. We move on. And we're going to talk about some other people's work today. And um, I, it made me think the um, the piece I sent you this morning, um, The Evil of Banality by Jacob Siegel. Jacob Siegel, Jake Siegel, um, is a friend. Uh, I, I met him here in New York, but he um, he actually lives in Israel now with his family. Um, he's just one of the best writers I know, one of the best thinkers. And, um, and he wrote I, for, yeah, he writes for Tablet and Unheard yeah, and... You know, I, I wrote a really interesting piece that I, I am going to completely blank on, but that's when he came to my, to my um, observation. You know, that's when I became aware of him. I, I uh, realized, you know, you and I, a couple of things. Like, we, we've had a few people write in. Hello, good morning. Hey, Sarah, what's the name of the show? Smoke them if you got them, babe. 
And um, I'm, I'm, I'm sending another, as I, as we should do more often, thank you out to the listeners. Your, and your comments are just amazing. Sarah wrote to me last night. She's like, God, I love the, the comments that people are sending us. Yeah, um, I do. Well, I love reading the comments because I'll get like, I'll get trapped in my own little world of whatever I'm working on or, you know, some story I'm trying to push out from between my, you know, well, <laughs> I just push out for my fingers is what I should say. Let's just, let's just recast that. Um, I think that's what Donald Trump said about Megyn Kelly. Oh God. Or, you know what? Anyway, so yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, but I'll, I'll get caught in my own world and then I'll forget to go and look at the comments on our, on our um, posts and then I'll read them. And it's just like, it's just really lovely. It's just this continuation of a conversation. I love what what our listeners bring. I love the stories that they tell. I love discovering and and exploring ideas alongside of them. Uh, even when they don't agree with us, they're so good natured about uh, about it, and I, I love that. There's such a there's such a, a feeling of of you know, like there's a civil feeling of, of mutual exploration that I just really camaraderie. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I, we are listening to what you said. So one thing I am going to try to do is speak just not quite as fast, which is going to be impossible because I speak at the rate I speak, but I hear you guys saying that sometimes you can't, someone said they like to listen to the to podcast at like one and a quarter or one and a half speed. Well, I said this on the, on the last week, I said oh, this on did. the podcast that my friend <laughs> said this and that you turn into a squeaky chipmunk. Minnie Mouse. And that I'm, um, yeah. Um, but also interestingly, someone said, you know, we, we're, we're immediate people. Like we're, we're throwing articles at each other all day. I'm reading different articles, poking into different stories. And, um, you forget that people are not, you know, that's not what they do. They're like a, they're a ranch hand or they drive a truck or they work in a restaurant. And so God, I they, hope we have a large ranch hand contingency. Me? Well, you're in Texas. Hey, lady, you got to lift that in. That's your that's your crew. I don't have any ranch hands <laughs> I'll, up here, I'll do that. here in Brooklyn and Manhattan. But um, yeah. but we we sometimes I think take for granted that people know who other people are. But one thing I think we can do is, for instance, like alert you to these like super great journalists like a Jake Siegel, and his his piece that I linked to yesterday and sent to Sarah, the the evil of banality. He was really taking to task some of these like Twitter blue check marks who about like really what are like kind of an important and controversial issues just get all like yawn about it. Like, oh God, why don't you even, why do you even care about that? And it's, and he talked about what a cop out that really was instead of actually joining the conversation about really, really hard things that are dividing the nation in many ways. Um, they just kind of yawn, like they're, they're just so above it and they can't believe like, like the little people like us would concern ourselves. And the quote that I, I took out of it and I, I kind of, um, I, I, I cut it down a bit, but he wrote, Jake wrote, yawning at gender ideology expressed in phrases like, why do you care what consenting adults do simply makes no sense when it's applied to the medical interventions performed on children. And that's really what happens. You know, people start talking about like, do we think it's a good idea for, you know, thousands of girls to get voluntary mastectomies at at 14 or 15 or whatever they're lowering the age to. And when someone comes back at you and says, well, that obviously you're a transphobe or yawn, why do you care? It's like, well, I I kind of do care. And there can be a lot of sides to the, the an issue, let's say. I'm just taking this as an example because he used it as an example. Jake did. Um, 
But, you know, to to do that is really, to me, a shirking of your duty as a journalist, someone who has a platform. You're not supposed to be there being all like, oh, yawn, you guys are just so ignorant. Why do you care? That That's really a dereliction of duty, I think. I think it's your duty. You cannot wade into it at all and say, well, I have no particular opinion. But to put others down who are trying to have a conversation about this and, and make it look like they're just like rubes or, or knaves or something, I I... I I, I think it's awful. And anyway, Jake did a really terrific job, as he always does. He's on staff at Tablet, actually. And um, we'll put a link to him and his work um, and this article in the show notes. So. Well, I think one of the interesting things that happened in journalism was that a lot of the the sort of exploratory phase went public when you go onto Twitter. So you're sort of thinking through things in real time. Uh, what I mean is that... Uh, it used to be that you'd have a story and then that would be the end result of stuff that you'd thought about for a long time. But now you might be thinking out loud in, in a forum um, before you've really come to any conclusions. I'm not articulating myself very well here. No, no, you're, no I, 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 under, I think people understand exactly. Like, you know, you go off and do a story, you spend a week or a day or a month or whatever thinking about it, and you can balance it out and sort of put your opinion out onto the world and see what comes back to you. Now, because we have these instantaneous mediums and because it can be fun or people like to jump into the fray or you can just sort of like blip it out there. But I still don't, I don't think yawning is, is, is any sort of reaction. If you're just going to yawn, go go do it by yourself and see how boring and unremunerative that is. Like, what does that do for you to put me down or not put me down, but like say like, oh, yawn, why do you care about that? Well, I do. <laughs> well, it's one of the deflective moves of, you know, basically um, moving the conversation away from something that is actually quite complicated. I mean, it's the same... Right you know, jujitsu move that I talked about. I was, I was recently on Megan Daum's, um, unspeakable podcast. Wonderful, wonderful episode. Thank you. And we were talking about how, you know, over the past few years, when I brought up stuff that was about maybe the complications of whether it was me too, or, uh, second amendment stuff or, you know, gun stuff or, um, abortion or whatever, the, the, the move was, what are you, some kind of Republican? What are you, some kind of conservative? And it was a shutdown tactic. And, and in the beginning, it would really startle me. And, and, and I would be sort of like, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess I'm really off on this thing. And, and what it does is to basically, um, divert your attention from the idea that these are actually really complicated ideas that deserve a, a much more, um, a, a much greater airing. And, and to be thoughtful about something. I loved, I loved your episode. I listened to it. I was walking around uh, going to B&H. Great, man, B&H is an electronics store here in New York City. Best customer service man in the city. I love this place. Um, but I really, I loved when you said, you know, I, I have all kinds of friends here. I live in Texas. You live in Texas. You're going to have all kinds of friends. If you're, you know, if you're an open, per curious person as you are, you know, in, in New York City, it's maybe a little harder. Like if you're in like the, you know, like the East Village or wherever I'm trying to, to, to find people that are, are super conservative. But I certainly have plenty of friends who are conservative too, even if we don't talk about it. 
like it's not necessary for, for well, us to talk about this all the time. <laughs> one of the things I really appreciate about living in where I live is that there's an awareness that you might not want to front load politics. Oh, which which yeah. was long an understanding, you know, like this was part of etiquette. Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about religion. These are super divisive issues. And so maybe you want to front load with common ground, things that you have in common. And, and, you know, maybe you like the same movies or maybe you like the same music, who knows, but, but start there. And, and I feel like something that happened over the last few years was that it flipped, which was, I'm going to know your politics first, and then I'm going to judge whether I want to be friends with you based on that. I find that to be, um, I mean, I, I guess people like to form tribes. That's what they do. Um, but I find that like very strange, like, oh, uh, what's your what's your political affiliation? Okay, now we can be friends. That's, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, obviously, it wouldn't be that blunt. Um but speaking of that, another great writer that I'm going to link to is um, is Ben Dreyfus. Ben Dreyfus is one of the funniest, smartest people you will ever come across. And he's got a big internet personality. He's also the son of Richard Dreyfus, the actor. But he posted a really good piece this morning on his Substack. He's been on fire this week. This is like the third piece he's, he's posted this week that is just hits it out of the park. And he wrote, why Republicans shouldn't want Donald Trump to run again. And I, and I promise this is going to connect to what you just said. Um, And he wrote, Donald Trump is a world-class vibe manipulator. Nominating him raises the vibe stakes, but you don't get anything for that. You get a politics increasingly of posting, of dunks, of nonsense. And um, that's, that's where our temperature has been. That's where the temperature in the country has been since Trump came into office. That's what he does. That, 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 that's what he does well, and, or, you know, put, put for ill. Um, right. and, and, and Ben went on to say that, like, <laughs> Biden is sort of like the great decelerator, like he's trying to bring down the temperature. So um, maybe we don't have to uh, be so tribal anymore because it's, it's really, I don't think it's remunerative. That's the second time I used that word, this, this podcast. Usually it's axiomatic, right? That's my, that's you my. You love that oh, one. I'm overused it. Rem- I, I just, remuner- that always makes my tongue trip. Remunerative. 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 Yeah, it's weird. It's like the M and the N seems like they should be switched it's around. You, just you- a lasagna <laughs> of a word. Remunerative. <laughs> lasagna of a word. Um, so what are we going to talk about this morning? Are we going to talk about, um, about um, Barry Weiss's? Um, yeah, I think that would be interesting to talk about. Before, uh, you know, and... and so, so you sent me uh, a speech that she gave as part of the inaugural classes at a, a new experimental university. And so before we get into the, before we get into the speech and, and what she says, and it's very interesting, I wanted to talk a little bit about the creation of that university, which I find really fascinating. Okay. Uh, it was announced about a year ago and... I remember I, I saw it because the thing that came up on my news feed was like something like University of Austin is a grift. And I was like, hey, I went to University of Austin. No, I didn't. I went to University of Texas at Austin, but I was right. confused. And right. I thought sure. that they were talking. Right. And I was like, it's a state school, but it's actually a really good deal. You know, I was like, I was like <laughs> why is everybody bagging on my alma mater right now? I love that. <laughs> and 
<laughs> then I realized, oh, okay, it's a new university. It's based in Austin, and it's associated with Barry Weiss, who is a divisive figure for reasons that we can discuss, although they're somewhat mysterious to me because she's a very interesting journalist um, who just became associated with a kind of, I, I guess I would say, wrong think. In, uh, in I, I can, when we get there, I'll tell, I can, I can tell the story of Barry. And so, <clears throat> so this is a university that is sort of developing in, in a response to the problems of current universities where there are a lot of problems. And we've talked about some of them before, but they're very expensive. Some of them have been very, uh, you know, there's a bureaucratic bloat. There's been a lot of being held hostage to certain ideas of the students. And it's, so, so anyway, this, this, this university begins. One of the things I'm confused about, though, is why it's in Austin, what it has to do with Austin, why it's called the University of Austin. These are the only gripes I really have about this place, by the way, is that nobody associated with it, to my knowledge, has any any relationship to the city of Austin, but it's called University of Austin. It's now being called UATX. Yeah, well, that's it's. I guess it's um, it's abbreviation like UVA or something like that. I, I can't answer the Austin question. I can um, agree with you and give a little more uh, sunshine or sunlight on how it happened. Um, so, not only you know, many people feel that some of our more elite universities, especially that have influence, obviously, and lots of money, um, are have become somewhat captured by ideologies that are. Um, maybe not as open to free expression and free thought as we want them to be or as they were founded to be. Um, and I think this is true. I mean, we read stories of, of teachers um, at Stanford or at Yale or at other places that maybe have a different political view or maybe didn't think the lockdowns were so great or uh, want to challenge some of the speaking about Black Lives Matter and they're they're drummed out of their university and publicly shamed quickly. And these become stories. And because Barry, and I'll tell Barry's story in a minute, though a lot of people probably know it, um, they come to Barry and and she has them write up posts. Anyway, it 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 started to gather steam, not that way necessarily mm. with her site. Barry's site is called um Common Sense, and her podcast is called Honestly. Um but other people too. One is Peter Bogosian. Peter Bogosian was at um, um, Port Portland State. Portland State University. Yeah, I know. I know Peter. Um, he is a friend. I've done work with Peter. We can put up a couple of videos that I that I made that he asked me to make for him about sort of. You know, I don't like the word woke. I think a lot of people don't, but it was sort of about woke ideology. And my it was really more about my experiences with Antifa when I was covering the protests in in 2020 and and what I kind of what I gleaned from there. We'll, we'll put some links to the videos in the show notes. Um, he was one of the people with Barry who um, 
decide Heather Hying is another one. Uh, Heather is a friend. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll put some links to Can her I pause story. on Peter Bogosian sure. for a moment? Because sure. I couldn't remember who he was. And so I looked him up yesterday. And it was so interesting to me that one of the reasons he gets pushed out of Portland State University, you know, he's this um, philosopher and atheist, but he decides to uh, put out these, I guess they're kind of like hoax gender studies um, that he sends to a bunch of academic journals and some of them get published. Some of them get rejected, but they're, they're basically like satires. And he's basically trolling these academic journals, um, to prove how, how silly some of this research has become. And the one that got a lot of traction was the, the dog rape. They, they said that they went to parks and they could see how, uh, you know, certain male pattern behavior and there was dog rape, rape in dog parks. And I have to say, like, he did it with this woman, Helen Primrose. She's in London. And this guy, James Lindsay, who has since, at least if you judge his behavior on Twitter, has sort of lost his mind. But in any case, this was a, this was a while ago. They put it... They put them out and they got published in these academic journals who then, you know, proceeded to really have egg on their face that that they had thought that these were very important new gender studies. And they turn out to just be sort of almost like Monty Python-esque in a sense. And um and and Portland State was outraged. I mean, you that that's the way it goes. You're not allowed to show the emperor that he doesn't have any clothes. And um, but it, it was more, I I don't know a chapter and verse, and it's not my place to tell Peter's story, but I was hanging out with Peter somewhat in Portland when he was in the middle of being, I mean, the students were just like protesting his very existence for years, years, years. And um, and he finally left uh Portland State. Um, I believe he was a tenured professor, actually. Um Anyway, they've created this university uh, again, yeah, about a year ago, and they had some really interesting people on the board, and then there were the founding board members of which Barry is one. And I remember when it came out, I never thought it was a grift at all. I think it was created quite earnestly. I did, I will admit, think it was a little bit of a poke in the eye to, you know, these, these other institutions who had you know, become so captured by woke ideology. And I'd had no idea whether, you know, whether it was going to actuate, whether it was going to grow well. And because also their first courses that they were offering were more, and I don't know what their course load is now. I have not gone on and looked, um, but it was more like leadership kind of classes. It wasn't like, didn't look like traditional um, university. Well, that was then. And in Barry's um, um, uh, speech, to the incoming class, which took place in Dallas, didn't it? Didn't, isn't that right? Which yes. Is, this, I don't know why. The inaugural classes for this took place at the old Parkland Hospital in Dallas, which is uh, fascinating to me that the, the Parkland is the old hospital that, uh, you know, it's fa- it became famous because it's where JFK uh, died. Oh, and so oh. there's a new Parkland hospital that's been built uh, in a different part of town. But I drive by this. It's kind of like this beautiful building. It's this old Greek revival architecture. And I drive by there quite a bit. And I'm like, what do they do here? What's happening here? And I was told they're like, like offices. It just always seemed like a completely underused property. I guess one of my my questions was like, why don't you start your university here instead of Austin, which is over, like, is is so overpopulated and will be very difficult to find a campus, but whatever. 
I get it. Austin has like an incredibly cool vibe right now. Um, I just these are I I I am I really support the development of this university. I have no idea where it's going, but I think it's fascinating. I think, and I have heard over the last several years from young people, but particularly men, that were saying, you know, college just doesn't work. It's just, it doesn't serve me. You know, one of the interesting things I looked into last week, because we were doing that thing on TikTok influencers and people skipping college, was, well, what is the college enrollment? And, you know, like college enrollment has been down something like 3 million over the last decade, and it was down a million during the pandemic. And this is particularly true among men. I mean, this men have disproportionately stopped going to college, which is something that we've known. <clears throat> I don't think it's something that you hear a lot about, but the percentage um, has been something like 60-40 for at least like five or six years. And that gap is just getting larger and larger. Right. And this was something that I really noticed. So in 2005, two, I'm sorry, 2015, 2016, when I was going and lecturing at colleges, one of the things I noticed that I found so surprising was that when I would go into a college classroom, all the women would be sitting in the front and they would be asking questions and they would be super engaged. And all the men were sitting in the back, often like they'd had like hoodies over their heads so they could like listen to their airpods you're there like clearly not listening and see this was a this was a flip-flop of what i had seen in my college years because in my college years men were really the argumentative ones and i as a woman that had um a little bit of trouble uh i guess in the classic sense you would say like finding my voice or being Difficult. Like I would never talk. And and the, the discussions were dominated by guys. And I just and everywhere I went, I was seeing this like retraction of men. And I really wasn't sure what was happening. Um, and I I don't know that I have the exact answer for that. But one of the things I have heard, one of the theories I've heard was that debate became a little fraught. The idea of saying the wrong thing was risky. And so they they kind of stopped engaging. Oh, well, and, and kind of slunk, you know, once you started, um, and also that somewhere along the way, being really good at school got coded as a female behavior, which I think is just completely tragic. Oh, that's, that, that is. Like, then what's the point of going? Like, what's the point of going to school if you're not going to try to do well. I mean, I per personally, I shouldn't have gone to college when I did. I was an idiot. Like, there's no point. Um, but, you know, they do. We go at 18. And I, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think Barry touched on this in her things. Like, we are at a point now where, just like a lot of things, if college is going to carry on, it has to remake itself. It has to remake itself for something that people want to be at, where they do feel like they're allowed to explore ideas, which has been a problem. Now, of course, it's been a problem in the ways we hear about that it's a problem. I'm sure there are many schools where freedom of speech is still prized, where you don't have to worry that you're going to say the wrong thing and you're going to be kicked out. But it is the case in elite in universities where you're paying like, you know, $80,000 a year 
um, that that is the case. I'll give a, a small example. My nephew went to Hampshire, um, which is very, very, very liberal uh, college, and he um, he said he didn't. He he's he's now he's in his late twenties now. He's like he just stopped speaking in class because he would just get railed on um, by by the girls for any like opinion that he had. Well, Hampshire, if I'm not mistaken, I'll look up. I'll look this up. A couple of years ago, their incoming class was nine students. Okay, nine. Because what? people, how yeah. is that even possible? Well, exactly. It's like, well, it's possible because people like these schools are, you know, in the tens of thousands of dollars. Often, if it's a liberal arts school, you've got rich kids going, and you, maybe their parents are paying for it. I mean, that that happens a lot. And I mean, I wouldn't send my kid to a school that was eighty thousand dollars a year, and 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 she knew that you know her ideas were not going to be allowed to be explored because you're going to learn you're going to learn what we're going to teach you and if you step out of this line you're going to be publicly shamed or something no this is not interesting this is not this is not college i don't know what this is but it's some kind of mill so you can come out thinking in the way that they want you to think i think i have a quote here from um from Barry's speech um and she wrote a politics that forces its adherents to put that, to, oh, no, 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 sorry, wrong. I'm going to get to that later. Well, I'll read it anyway now because we're going to get there. A politics that forces its adherents to put their most intimate relationships to a litmus test is a politics of totalitarianism. And what she was talking about there is, um, for instance, um, her wife, Nellie Bowles, who is a good journalist for the New York Times, she's not there anymore, regularly gets letters saying, you need to denounce your wife. You need to denounce your wife so you can prove that you've like got the bona fides so we can like support you as a person and as an intellectual. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's so foul. But well, let's get back to a uh, University of, of Austin for a second. So they came around who knew what was going to happen? There was, of course, as when things start, there's always a little controversy. A couple of people left. A couple of people joined. Well, they have raised, may I quote this? They have raised more than $100 million since last year. That's, that's a lot of money. That's and, a lot of money. And the other statistic yeah, that is so fascinating. Yeah. Uh, they got more than 3,500 inquiries from professors at other universities. In the first week. Yeah. Because guess what? You professors, even if it's happening at Princeton and you're you're at school in you know some small town in Illinois, you notice it, right? Okay, it's sort of like if something happens to Brad Pitt, every actor in the country notices it, right? If you know that at Princeton, uh, the professor that you know wanted to talk about X and was drummed out of school for talking about X, you register this. You don't want that to happen to you. So where do you go? Where do you go? You go to a place where they are committed to to free inquiry, whatever that is, and that's what that's what Barry was talking about. It's a very it's a very moving speech. I I both read the speech, um, which came in an email because I'm I, I I'm part of the whole common sense uh, honestly world. And I also listened to it. It was different. It was interesting. They, it was not exactly the same speech. I noticed that. Yes. Yeah. Be um, before we get to the speech, I wanted to say something about when it debuted in, in 2021, which is that it got really dragged on Twitter. <clears throat> a lot of people, uh, speaking of dunking, there was a, a, a lot of dunking on this university, which had 
potentially been announced before certain things were lined up sure. in a row. I think Steven Pinker had to kind of come out and say, you know, I'm actually not on the board. And, uh, you know, somebody else did the same thing. So there was there was a little bit of like, yeah. Um, but <clears throat> this is one of those situations where it is so easy to own somebody that's trying something new and who's doing it in in public, in real time, and trying to figure it out. You know, I have a line in my book that in, in Blackout that I think about a lot, which is like, it's so much easier to kick over sandcastles than to build your own. Oh, which, darling. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't it's know. just and Twitter is just like the land of kicking over sandcastles, you know? Like it, this is bullshit. It, it, this is stupid. This you don't know what you're doing. Yawn. Um yawn. Yeah. yawn. Also, yeah, I I, I probably have written and said 20 times about the the activists, the more violent activists in Portland. It's like it's super easy to break stuff. How about building something, kids? Like, show me what you have built. And one of the things, if we wind up talking about Mina's World, the um, the uh, cafe in uh, Philadelphia, you know, people that are really good at breaking things, they break things. They don't like this. I don't want you to own this store. I don't want you to have this idea. I don't want you to just say this thing about this person. I'm going to destroy you. It's like, okay, now you're standing in the ashes what you going to do, kids? Like, show me what you know how to build. And they kind of expect that, like, the whole world is going to rally behind them. Like, yay, look at you. You're, we're so proud of you for breaking shit down. They're like, yeah, now help me build stuff. And it's like, no, actually, that's the part you need to figure out. Like, you need to figure out how to build stuff. Also, building is so fun and it's so hard and it's so joyous and you meet so many crazy people because you need to people bring these ideas and it really is it's a blossoming and that is what Barry is doing out of hardship okay and to just put that down is so weak man like you don't have to like it that's fine but just go build something as opposed to like spending your time yawning or or breaking it down publicly. That's really a waste of your time and mine if I'm paying attention to you. Um, though it does give us stuff to talk about. Um, like it's 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 you build more stuff with courage than you do with complaining. That is for sure. Yeah. And I'm very drawn to people that are building something new. I think that's all that's always fascinating. It's always exciting. And there's a lot of reasons to think that this, this experiment, this university um, will be, if nothing more like worth watching. You know, the the acting president is the is Pena, uh, how do I say this name? Peno Canelos, who is the former president of St. John's College. And St. John's College is fascinating to me. You know, that's the college where they read the great books. Are you familiar with that? Uh-uh. I yeah, mean, I, it, I read about him, but no, I don't I don't know it very much now. I mean, I, I have a friend that went to St. John's and I just find it a really, the curriculum is to basically read the great books and to immerse yourself in the Western canon. And, and, and I don't know exactly how it works, but it's one of these colleges that did it a little bit differently than everybody else. And, and the idea was to kind of, to kind of create deep and free thinking individuals. So, um, and there are a lot of interesting people that are associated with this yeah. university. Yeah. You know, Niall Ferguson, who's a really interesting British really historian. Uh, Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a very controversial figure, but 
you know, as a, a, I think she's a Somali immigrant who's been, you know, in the aughts, she was really championed. And then I think she began to be seen as an Islamophobe because she was speaking out against some of the fundamentalism of Islam. Um, but she's a fascinating woman. And uh, who else is here? Well, my pretend boyfriend, Jonathan Haidt. <laughs> is one of the people associated with this school. So we just, we have a lot of really interesting thinkers uh, who are coming together to try to build something new. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, worth watching. And if I may, just for the, for, for giggles, um, I'll just tell a little personal story about Barry, a little bit of how, where she got where she is. Um, I think I've told the evening gown story about, have I already the evening gown story? Well, we'll just tell it. Here we are. So I'm at a, a Reason Magazine um, gala in New York City in 2017. And at that time, I was writing for the Wall Street Journal. I was writing um, a lot of book reviews for them. And I was wearing a gown. It was black tie. I had this really pretty gown. And um, I walked into the bathroom and this woman says, oh my God, that dress is so incredible. And I was like, hi, I'm Nancy Rommelman. She's like, you're Nancy Rommelman? I'm like, yeah. She's like, I'm Barry Weiss. I edit you at the Wall Street Journal. I was like, oh my God. And we we became like instant friends. And then she moved to the New York Times and um, we were friendly. And they, she was not very um, welcome at the New York Times. She'd left the journal because the journal was really skewing more conservative than she was comfortable with when Trump was elected or running up to the, the election. And um, she and, and actually my editor too, who's there at the time, Robert Messinger, he left too. So she joined the Times and she was really a, a kind of a superstar, but she was not, people in the building didn't like her because they felt that she was conservative, which she's not. She's, a, she's from from uh, Pittsburgh. Uh, she's very liberal, um, but she was kind of a People didn't like her. Let's put it that way. In any case, in um, the summer of twenty nine was twenty uh, twenty. When did the Tom yeah, Cotton twenty 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 twenty? She was at the opinion pages, and um, she the Tom Cotton editorial came out where he wrote um, Senator Tom Cotton. He had said he wrote something about. Um, you know, Trump might have to call out the National Guard to these cities where all of these protests are happening, including Portland, where I was covering the protests, where I can tell you they were quite violent. Um, well, the Times ran an opinion piece because it's the opinion section. And um, the uh, the um, the staff, more activist staff in the building went nuts. And um, uh, the, the head of the opinion pages was drummed out. He had to leave. And Barry um, also left. She left because they were making it so impossible for her. And then she went on and she founded what she did. But I kind of skipped the middle part of this story, which was the part I meant, the only part I meant to tell. In um, in uh, January 2019, I was in New York at an event Barry used to throw, she kind of laughingly or whatever, thought of the thought criminals dinners. And it would be a whole bunch of people. It'd be John McWhorter and me and Matt Welch and, and Jesse Single, just lots of interesting people just there like drinking. Then we'd go downstairs in the comedy cellar and watch some comedy. In any case, it's January 2019. A whole bunch of people were in the barrel, including me. My life was kind of burning down because I was perceived to be making the wrong questions about Me Too. And Jesse Single was in the barrel because he had written something about um, uh, uh, trans kids and John McWhorter. It was just a weird time. And Matt Welch and Barry and I were standing at the bar. And this is was the conversation. Wow. <laughs> really feels like the walls are closing in, right? <laughs> really kind of feels like kind of things we're not allowed to talk about. Ha ha. We literally were kind of like laughing 
mm-hmm. there was also this sense, there was this sense that this tidal wave or a movement of some sort was rolling in and it was going to change mm-hmm. many things. And in fact, it did. I mean, our, our lives, all of our lives, Matt's more so kind of the same, but were changed immensely. And part of it was what was going on in the culture and, um, and it's still going on. And instead of just complaining, sometimes you can complain to your friends, that's fine. Um, you go out and try to make new things with it. And, um, Barry has done this probably better than anyone. And, um, I'm very glad to be associated with her. And I can tell you, I just wrote a big piece for her. It'll be coming out I don't know, later this week or, or next week. Obviously, we'll link it when it comes out. Um, and she's surrounding herself with lots of interest. Heterodox is a world nobody nobody really knows. It's like heterodox. Is that like a, a sexual orientation? But basically, she is surrounding herself with people that think in many different ways. And that's what I want to hear from. Um, right. I don't want to hear from everybody that thinks like me. And obviously, our listeners don't either. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't think so. Um, anyway, I'm, I'm a fan. I'm a Barry Stan. And um. And we will link the um, the um, speech. And I'll, what else do you have to say about it, Sarah? One think? of the things that draws me to people like Barry um, is that, I, well, I've always been drawn to people that have different ways of seeing the world than I do or or might challenge the way that I think. And, I, and, and something happened about five to ten years ago where it felt like suddenly associating with people like that uh, would mark you as... <laughs> A thought criminal. And yeah, Uh, I actually met Barry as well. It's interesting that you met her because she complimented your dress. (laughs) I met her because she complimented my leather skirt. I was wearing a tight leather skirt and high uh, zip up high heel boots to a party. And she came up to me and was like, girl, you're rocking that. And I was like, oh, thanks. Who are you? And then she said she was Barry Weiss. And it was like, Oh my God, Barry Weiss is like a nice person. He's so sweet. Because She's I had so only sweet. known her through the uh, uh, trollish monster that was her persona that people were talking about on social media. And I was so struck by the sweetness and openness of this person who had been cast in my imagination as something so different. Um, She's a love bug. She's a total lug bug and just such like a Jewish mother. Like she'll feed you, she'll hug you. She's a, and that's why it's so, I mean, it's so absurd, the the things that are slung at her. But, you know, people, I, I don't know anyone. I mean, certainly not anyone in my personal life, but even maybe anyone in media that has some, has uh, had to withstand the hatred or, or whether they really hate her or not, or they're just enjoying diddling themselves over the possibility that they hate Barry. Or, it's just, it's, it's, it says a lot more about the people doing it than it does about her because it really, it, she is not the person exactly like you said, like, wow, I heard all these horrible things. She's not. She's she's loving and she's generous and she's extremely smart and she's got a lot of balls, man, because she's just gone out and done it and people believe in it and they should and I, and I believe in it too. So go, Barry. So this is a speech that she gave um early in June at this inaugural class. And it's inspiring for a lot of reasons. Um, And I'd love to hear some of the things that you took away from it. One of the things that struck me early on in it is her kind of clear declaration that, look, what's become obvious to anyone is that we're living through a kind of revolution. 
It's not a physical one. Um, and she goes on to quote her friend saying that it's not being fought within the physical limits of a battlefield. It's instead happening all around us and directly to us. It is redefining our culture, our media, and giving new shape to our public and private institutions. It's remaking the nation before our eyes. It's a revolution of culture and ideas. And she later calls it a soft cultural revolution. And she calls it the biggest untold story in America one right now. So I found it grounding to have someone name what it felt like this destabilizing force. You know, I think for the last few years, I was sort of going like, are we in a cold civil war? Like what, like what is happening? I just feel this constriction. Like you say, like a couple years ago, there was this sense of like, there's a wave coming and I don't know what it is. And I, I, I think that one of the reasons why I've been drawn to things like, I know I've talked about uh, watching, for instance, like 1883, which is a story about the Oregon Trail. Um, Yellowstone, which is, I think, is a, a lesser show, but also very fascinating. Um, but I've been drawn to these stories of pioneering days is because they're also living through revolutions, you know, that that they are in the process of leaving everything they've known and going to a new world. And the arduousness of the journey, the confusion of the journey, um, that's something that has called to me at a time when I feel like we are, our, our landscape is changing. The world is changing. It's not a physical, you know, we're not physically trudging the Oregon Trail, but there is a technological revolution. There is an ideological revolution that's happening around us. And the old ways, the old modes, the old ideas of thinking are not there. What does that mean for us? Um, and, and, and this is one of the other reasons why it is so disingenuous to have that sort of like yawn. Well, what is there to, to say about this? It's because like that, that is the least relevant thing to say about this moment because it's 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 electric and fascinating and convulsive and 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 racked with uncertainty. No one knows where we're going with any of this. So anyway, that's sort of the opening of this piece uh, that leads us into some ideas about what to do as we, you know, trudge the, the, the weary path across this, this new landscape. What were some of the things that struck you about this piece? I mean... You know, um, Camille Foster um, of of the Fifth Column and, and various other things he said, free think. Um, you know, he, his catchphrase is, you know, be brave, call bullshit. And mm -hmm. basically, that kind of you could distill a lot of what Barry wrote down to that. And people are not brave, and 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 I under I completely understand why they're not. They are, you know, it it it, it, it manifold reasons, right? You, it's because they are true believers, or because they're afraid that if they say the wrong thing, they're going to get destroyed, or because they don't know what to think, or because they're lazy, or they feel like yawn, whatever it is. Let's also say that throughout human history, brave has not been the default position of human beings. Well, and, and no, it never it, will be. It never it will never be. will be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and that no, the okay. default you know the default position is you know acquiescence, going along with it, keeping your head down. Whatever, letting I, history happen to you. You know, my my dear late father, um, he once said to me, never volunteer. And I was like, I'm always the first one to volunteer. It's like, you know, 
I, I, I can't, I, I don't, I don't know how to stay out of things. If, if it's something that's calling to me, I just, you know, it's, we, we've talked about this before. It, it is, there is no doubt that it's harder for me to be quiet than it is to, to speak up. I have no problem speaking up. Of course, it, it gets me in trouble sometimes, but I, I'm sorry, you know, that's the way it is. But one thing that really struck me is I think we are in this new landscape, we're told we're being told by a lot of the major institutions, a lot of the major media uh, sites to um, to shut up and comply. And that is that's totalitarianism. okay? And I'm we're we're we're, we're I, I can't live that way. And even if it's just intellectual totalitarianism, and that's what, you know, she was very, very strongly, Wailing gets, but also with a very how-to. She had like 10 points at the end. She's like, here are the things. But when you're also saying, you know, she she basically was talking to these young people and saying, you are and can, or you can be, and you are the new founders. Like, remember the people that founded this country were like under 35 years old, all right? And new ideas do happen and new revolutions do happen. And you, of course you don't see it exactly. Of course you don't. It's the water we're swimming in. The fish doesn't see the water, right? But you can carve new paths. You just have to do it. You have to try. You have to make mistakes. And you have to just, the, she's giving them, helping to give them an incubator to do what they all run, want, they already want to do. And that's, that's what impressed me. I just, I, again, when they first launched this, I thought, uh, are they really going to do it? Or is it more just like, you know, we're not going to take it anymore. No, they're really doing it. Um, and you know what? I'm going to wager that it's going to not only maybe give other people that might have these ideas to create new things, but maybe the existing institutions are like, oh, wow, 3,500 applications from teachers in one week? What are we not seeing here? What are we not doing at our university that we're getting 3,500 applications in a week? What can we maybe, maybe, maybe we need to open up the ideas that we've been closing down for the past couple of years? There's been a fashionable cynicism about our country, um, and uh, and and for a lot of good reasons, I think. I mean, there's a lot of things that feel incredibly frustrating about it on various sides of the aisle. But one of the things I like about this piece is that it dares to be optimistic about yes. this country yes. and also uh, to be, gosh, dare I say, patriotic about what its founding principles were. And, you know, she she has a line here that the, the beauty of America was that it insisted that there are whole realms of human life located outside the province of politics, like friendships, art, music, family, and love. And those are the most important parts of life. And anyone that says otherwise is forgetting what it means to be American and really a human being, which I found a very restorative phrase. It, it uh, absolutely seven, is. Seven, section. Um, I'm going to just pivot for a second. We can come back to Barry if you want. But we had, um, I, I don't know what it was in reaction to last week, but there was a tweet last week that I I sent you um, from a gal. She was a, a white woman. I, I don't know her name. She goes under Hegemami. Um, and she wrote, honestly, if you're a white person who says they're committed to racial justice and you're in good standing with most of your family, I have questions for you. And they are decidedly pointed. Full disclosure, I'm in contact with exactly three members of my birth and extended family for this specific reason. Now, what, what 
sorts of um, groups ask you to denounce your family. Cults. And um, we can think of China. We can think of the Cultural Revolution, right? You're going to denounce your parents. You're going to denounce your uh, family. Um, There is, I guess, an energy to that. Um, But my response to her on Twitter was, if a mandatory part of your mission is separating from the people who love you, you are axiomatically in the business of destruction. I suspect nothing of lasting good can rise from the wreckage that what is built on exclusion and intolerance contains its own poison pills. So I I am in complete agreement with finding just to find that Barry and others in an institutional way are promoting inclusion of thought, of people, of love and ideas, that is the only I that is the only way any of us grow. And I'm sorry, the other way it's it's nihilistic and also so incredibly heartbreakingly sad that the people that love you, you now you've excommunicated them, you've excised them from your life because they are not believing whatever ideology, whether it's racial or religious or whatever, because of course it's going to change. Right now, it's this particular ideology they're pushing, but this person 10 years from now or 10 years previously, it would have been another one. It it, it's, it, it will impoverish her soul. And to think that you're going to build a better world by getting rid of the people you love, this just, this makes no mathematical or human sense whatsoever. Well, I was interested in this. Uh, you know, the New Yorker online has they're doing like a whole family week. And I found it very interesting because, you know, our ideas about the family are changing dramatically. And so it's very unusual that one of the first stories in their family issue is a story about a dating app for threesomes. But wait a minute, Christian, before you get into it, do you really think our ideas about family are changing radically or is it the very small, tiny percentage of the chatterati who are talking about that they should change radically? Oh, gosh, that's a really good idea. But I think inevitably there is a move toward blended families um, and, and, you know, singlehood is 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 more prominent than it ever has been before. I mean, one of the really interesting details that I read in a a story that came out years ago, uh, like 2018 or something like that. uh, No, actually it was 2020, but it was a David Brooks piece called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. And it's this, that's a bit of a stunty headline, but the idea is to kind of look at the evolution of the family over the 100 years. But one of the details in there that I found so fascinating was that in a 1957 survey, more than half the respondents said that unmarried people were sick, immoral, or neurotic. Whoa. Oh, but wasn't that also like the 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 era of the confirmed bachelor and the spinster? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. That's true. yeah. yeah. And so and and when you rock it forward into this uh new world that we're in, one of the details that comes out in this New Yorker piece that we're about to discuss is that uh, close to 50% of, uh, let's see if I can find this detail. Um, 
it, it's basically the huge surge in people that are living without children and and, 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 and alone. single and alone, which is you know which happens to me to be my demographic. So it's something that I've that I've watched 40, for a while. Forty seven percent, I thought something like that, which which was which pretty and it was between the ages of I guess like twenty and thirty five. Like it didn't it didn't I don't think it um was like in perpetuity, but it was a crazily large number. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a really large number of people that are living alone. Um, I, I think in terms of w- when we say the ideas of family are changing, things like ethical non-monogamy, which is part of what this story is about, I think those are smaller groups. But I have to say, I live here in Dallas, which is not really known as a progressive space. But starting in about 2013, 14, when I was on OkCupid, I was seeing a bunch of of couples that were uh looking for a unicorn or or you know what's a unicorn a unicorn (laughs) a unicorn is basically like a a bisexual woman that will join their relationship why is that called a unicorn i don't know i actually don't know why that term evolved but i would see it and then i would be like what does that mean um anyway yeah i did uh, learn some, i did learn some new words reading this uh this piece for sure yeah so this is a you know this is an interesting piece it's by an author named emily witt who is a like new york writer who i read a book of hers several years ago called future sex um it's interesting cuz both that book and this New Yorker piece begin with the same premise, even though they're years apart. And the premise is, I thought I was going to be in a committed, monogamous, what she calls in this piece, heteronormative relationship. And that thing went belly up. And now I'm going to explore the options that I have available to me. And maybe what I need to do, and, and, you know, this premise, uh, called to me in a way because it was one that I was sort of entertaining in my own mind was maybe what I need to do is give up my old ideas about what a marriage and a family are going to be. Maybe I need to embrace a new different future where connection and attachment is going to look a little bit different. Um, so that's that's sort of where this story starts. Um, it begins in the pandemic and she joins a online app called Field. Had you heard of this? N- no, you know I didn't know what a unicorn was. Okay, so no, um, I had I, heard I, that there was an app for threesomes, but I didn't. I didn't know what. Well, that's how it started. I guess now it's really sort of broad. But I, I will say, um, as someone we've talked about this before, I've never been on a dating app. I've seen them. I've seen my friends' dating app. I've never been involved in it. Um, but I did because she really does very quickly within the first couple of paragraphs. She's on Field. It's F E E L D, and she tells the story of the site. Um, and I was. You know, I'm reading about it. I was like, well, let me go on to the site itself just to see what it is because you can do that online. I didn't have to download an app or anything like that. Ah. Um, just to sort of explore because like we're going to be talking about it. And um, I found it uh, – yeah. 
I've, I've got some fields of myself, some feelings about you this got, kind of stuff. Gave me the I, fields. I, I, it, I read um, a few pieces. Some of them were quite, they, there weren't as many, um, there, there was no, for instance, I didn't see anybody's like profile. That, that was not available to me. But there were right. articles. There, it was like a blog also, and there were different articles. And I read them. And it's funny because you said, and I think it's just such an incredible quote, um, in the last episode or two episodes ago, you know, every generation tries to hack sex and everybody gets it wrong. <laughs> and yeah. I really felt reading these things, there's always this idea that like, we are the first people that have ever done this. And then there was this article where they were talking about how, you know, only something like of the 241 cultures in the world, I'm, I'm, I'm botching the numbers, but it doesn't matter. Like only like 53 are, you know, are monogamous and, you know, really it's all about all these other things. So I looked that up and it's like, it was actually like a thousand cultures. Like, yeah, because, you know, 600 of them were, um, polygamous, meaning you can have more than one wife and four were polyandry where you can have more than one husband. So this idea that like, really the rest of the world is all just for, it's like, and that, that's, that's not how that works. But there was also, there was this idea, which I guess you have to have that we are the first people ever to create these things. And it's like, okay, kids. Um, so it wasn't that didn't strike me as that fascinating, but there was something very fascinating to me in this, but I'm going to let you, you really know a lot more about this and the meat of the matter. And I will, I will chime in in a little while about what I found kind of interesting. Well, you just reminded me of something, which is that I, I read a really fascinating book called Marriage, A Cultural History that, uh, also goes over the ways that that's changed over the decades. And it's really fascinating to watch, you know, to watch these ideas evolve. And and one of the, the facts that stands out to me from that book is that the most common marital arrangement in human history is polygyny, which is one man with yeah. multiple wives. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, of course, and, and and this is the case still in many parts of the world. And this you is know? also the, the a lot of the arrangement on Tinder, from my memory, you know, was like one guy was dating multiple women. There we go. So, I anyway. Anyway. Uh, anyway. <laughs> okay. So, so this is an interesting piece. Um, one of the things I find fascinating about Emily Witt's writing, and I noticed this in uh, Future Sex, was that there's not a lot of description of the internal experience of what it is to be going into these different worlds. So, for instance, early in the piece, she says, you know, well, I went on field and I and I. um I, I quickly matched with this couple and I went over to their house and they had these potted plants and they had crown molding. And then, you know, it was nice, but I didn't. And it it was just like, wait a minute, can we go to the part where you just matched with a couple on this app and you're now going to go to their house and have sex with them? Like I'm, I'm not, I don't need her to be, you know, uh, it doesn't need to be lascivious or anything like that. I'm not necessarily looking for a a, a a sordid read, but I'm looking for the emotional experience of someone that had been in a committed relationship and is now with a couple that do have a committed relationship. And now she's going to join them. And what does that feel like? And it's sort of like, no, we're not going to get that in this piece. Well, but Sarah, to me, and, 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 the whole thing about field, or at least as you go through the article and as people are talking about it, 
it really isn't about the feelings. It's very, very, very much about engineering your sexual experience. She's engineering, very, she's yes. very clear about that. She says at one point, she says, uh, da, 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 um, what kind of sex, what kind of sex and what do we want? Oh, anyway, I'm going to botch it. I'm not even going to say it. In any way, she's like, you can go in. It's almost like going to Art Field. It's like going to a buffet and there are 300 items. And, and I'm actually probably not exaggerating. 300 items on the buffet and you can completely make your little menu. But it is a sexual menu. It is sexual. Like, I like medical porn. I like to be identified as this on Tuesdays, but this on Wednesdays. It is. It is not about... I mean, look, emotional connections, I'm sure, can form here, and I'm sure they're also baked in. But that does not seem to me what field is offering you. It's offering you, it's offering you the sex, and whether that's a gateway to anything else or not, is not explored. The the sentence that I found, you know, she has something that says, suddenly good sex wasn't only a spontaneous connection of chemistry, but a wide range of scenarios that could be engineered. That's exactly the quote. I was like, I couldn't read my own handwriting. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, she also has a line that says the other apps for all their creative prompts had never stated the question quite this plainly. What kind of sex did we want to have? And, you know, this is uh, amongst the women that she's speaking to. Um, it can be seen as something that is quite freeing. Of course, you know, it, it might be for a certain population. Um, she, she, the, the, early in the piece, uh, she gives you a description of things that you might see on the site. So the list might read something like kink, voyeurism, group play, submission, shibari, the, the Japanese art of rope bondage, butts, friends with benefits, male, female, male, cuddling, eye contact. Okay, so this is like pull-down menu of sexual play. Kitchen table polyamory. That's the one. I was like, what the hell is kitchen table polyamory? And it basically means like a bunch of people sitting around your kitchen table. That's now your your experience, like I don't know, five or six friends or something. I don't know. So this is one of the interesting things about the idea that you would say on a dating app what kind of sex you want. Um, this is actually a question that has been posed to me. I mean, look, for all the stuff that that this app is specializing in, you can find things like this in previous iterations. Uh, you know, OkCupid okay, had a lot of alternative sexualities. Tinder had a very uh, alternative sexual sexuality community because, you know, it's just technology is people find creative uses for it and they whatever. Um, but I find the question of what kind of sex do you want to be exactly the kind of question I don't want to answer. And I don't know if this is huh. my, uh, or maybe, maybe I'm looking at that wrong. I mean, you know, so the answer that I would give to that is like, I would like, I would like sex that is a discovery and not a prescription. Yes. And also, also, there is something, we've talked about sex can be very sacred with someone you love and also some like mystery. Like if you're completely ordering on the menu, it's like, where is, 
where is the discovery process? You've almost like, and, and I'm not saying, look, I, I don't know. To me, it seems like, you know, sex and love, or at least the way Fields is approaching it, are extremely different things. I, I also think I, I am I am of the mind is like, I don't really want to know about anybody's sex life. I'm just not particularly interested. I mean, if someone wants to tell me, that's fine. But I certainly don't want someone interested or looking into mine. And 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 this is very much, it strikes me as sort of like a, sort of a, it's become like a communal enterprise, right? We're all going to be here. We're all going to talk about it. And we're all going to explain what we want in our needs. It's very, very communal. It's like a communal sort of performative experience amongst thousands of people that you're joining with to have this moment to figure out. And I was like, well, I... I guess that makes sense. We live in a digital world. You can do that if you want. Uh, uh, person, this is just personally. I'm obviously older than a lot of people that are. The, I think the average age of the people using this app is like thirty. Um, that to me is not what sex is about. Sex is like something I want very, very private, and I don't want anybody else in the room. And I'm not saying there aren't like you know kinks that I could entertain or something like that, but. It's, this struck me. I was fascinated by it because it was so not about emotions. Right. For a, a site that's called Feel, it's almost anti-feel. No, it was yeah. so, it was so, again, sort of this like communal, like, what are we going to want here? Uh, I I found that somewhat fascinating. And if I were in the market to like, say like, okay, well, sometimes I fantasize about like, you know, playing doctor or something like, I'm sure I could find it. I'm sure I could go to, I could find someone that wanted to like be a doctor and I could be a patient or something. I'm, I'm giving an example, kids. Don't, don't me write me letters. Um, but um, it was, it was really, really um, emotionless. And um, that to me, I was like, well, and she, Emily Witt was kind of, interestingly, she kind of was looking for a connection. And toward the end of the piece, she's like, well, since then I did find love, you know, not on a, not on a site. So it's very different. This was not about romance at all. This was sort of like a, almost like a sex bot site. Like we are well, just. Well, I, I would say, yeah, sex bot site. I would say it was more of like sexual adventures that she took without the fear of attachment, emotional attachment. And some of them were playful. Some of them, you know, she talks about a lot of them took place in daylight. Like one of them, they like took a jog together. These are also things you can do on other sites. I mean, I think actually, if you're in the right mindset, one of the cool things about online dating is it can, it, online dating sites is it can be a constant fuel for adventure and unexpected connection and meeting other people. And if you keep your attachment, um, your expectations in check, meaning that you don't need that much from another person, it's almost guaranteed to be delightful in well, my that, experience. There was actually that one experience she was talking about a friend of hers who was in Europe, a gal was a pretty adventurous gal. And like within an hour of being on it, she like met some guy and she's like this on the done. She found herself and a friend on this boat to go meet the guy and his friends. And it was like super fun. Everybody, maybe when there aren't the expectations of romance and children and marriage, like you can just be like, and I'm not just talking like fucking in an alley or something because no. like, it's sort of what Tinder started like. It's like, where are you? I'm a block away. Okay, let's fuck. Um, this, it, it did... I have to say it was um it was presented as, some, as somewhat delightful. I can see that. I just I mean personally I don't um I don't operate with sex that way. Like I don't I'm not going to have sex with 
I mean, I never have, and I, I never will. I, but I, I do see, I do see the delight in it. Um, it just was so antithetical. It seemed to me to relationships, but maybe, you know, like you said, that's not what these people are there for. They're going to get that someplace else. Well, the interesting thing, I mean, the, the labeling thing is so interesting to kind of diagnose or label exactly what it is that you want. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's what we see happening in all sorts of culture, you know, because of the ability of technology to, to kind of drill down into specific tastes and desires. It, it, if, first of all, it also assumes that we know what we want. And I think that's one of the the wrong assumptions of sites like this, because oh, yeah. I actually think, and this has actually been operating wisdom on sites like OkCupid for a while, is that people say they want something, but their behaviors are saying something else. We often don't know what we want. We know what we're supposed to think we want, right? Um, so there's that divide. and And most people don't really know what's going to make them happy, but they but they have an idea of, of preferences. But back to the label thing, I was just thinking that, you know, that's, that's something I first saw with my gay male friends. You know, I can remember having conversations with them in, uh, probably the late nineties was when this started for me. And I was starting to realize that like, this is going to sound maybe like a little like straight girl naive, but like, oh, there's tops and bottoms and you really don't go out of that lane. Like I I remember a, a friend of mine was saying like, I met this guy and he's so great, but I'm a top and he's a top. And I was like, that's okay. It's okay. You can still love each other. And he was like, no, 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 it's doomed. And I was like, oh, wow, this is totally different to me. It's a different way of thinking, um, which is that your your sexuality would would require a certain like like I, I, I will say over the years, especially the younger guys have said to me, um, are you Dom or sub, you know, or like and I'm like, I'm not either like to me the idea of sex would be a kind of playful switching of roles a playful of I mean just to you know like I'll be on top and you'll be on top and then you'll take the lead and I'll take the lead and and I don't know maybe I may be um unusual in this that I like a kind of playful roles swapping Um, but the idea of having one way of being just never quite struck me as, well, it's not who I am anyway. Exactly. Me neither. Like I'm, maybe it is for some people, maybe like some people know they like bondage, like that's what they do. That's what they like. And that's what they're going to do. Okay. That's, that's fine. If that's what they want to do. Um, I'm, I'm with you. And, and it's like each person that you've been with, it's different. Like you're both, you're, you're both different elements and then you combine and it makes something new. I could use my cooking analogies, kids. See, I, I, I refrained, but you know, you, you mix and it's, and then it becomes this new thing. So, and that to me is a, is exciting. And if you're with someone you love, it, it, it's, it's pretty regenerative. I once had this guy stop seeing me because I, he just really wanted to be dominated. And I, I think I just fell flat on that. Like I just liked it. I kind of like, I can't do it. You know, like, Oh, just can't. It's so embarrassing. And here, here's the thing is like, I I think a lot of this stuff we're front loading, we're front loading with people that you don't know and you don't have trust with. 
where it's like if I if if the if the trust came first and then I could be playful and and do something and try that and I don't know maybe I would like yeah. it but you're asking me it feels like you're asking me to sing a solo you know sing a solo song to you <laughs> um in the middle of our date or something by asking me to dominate you it just is so destabilizing um I would find not, not, I, 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 yeah, no, no, no. I mean, one of my, one of my friends said something to me last night that I thought was so profound. And I've been thinking about it. He said, you know, you don't find love, you build love. Well, yeah, of course. I mean, definitely there are, there are the, you know, the, the, the love at first sight thing. I, I've, I've had that happen. So I know that that exists, but then you have to build it. It's not like you're just like under a spell and you just exist in it. It's like, yeah, you build it. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting about this was the statistics about what they call the digisexuals. That was the one that was people that only are experiencing, you know, are wanting to have like basically virtual sex. And so there's this part where they talk about introducing the fantasy bunker. And it's for people that want to skip the small talk and start sexting. And there's also something called remote trios for people that are wanting a digital threesome. And after these opened, they saw a 50% increase in downloads in the first half of 2020. Are they videos and, or is it videos? You know, that's a really good question. I, I don't know the answer to this, but I will tell you that this is something I noticed over the last five to six years of using dating apps was there was a huge rise in people that just wanted to stay on the apps and sexed and have like, like erotic fantasies that they would develop. And I, the first time this started happening, it was confusing to me. I was sort of like, why does this person not want to meet? Like I was noticing that people didn't want to meet in real life and it took me a while to figure it out. And my friends were noticing it too. And I was starting to realize, oh, there's all these people. It could be because they're married. It could be because they're not the person they say they are and they want to be having a kind of uh, virtual play where they're pretending to be something they're not. It could so so I don't think that these are naturally all video. I would imagine there is a there might be a video component of it, but my guess is that these are largely like text-based things of people that just they want to stay online. And I think this is a really smart thing that they introduced. This idea of fantasy bunkers and remote trios. Well, there's also the whole safetyism thing. It's like, well, right. I'm, I'm I'm safe. Like, I I'm not going to get an STD. I'm not going to get my. I can leave anytime I want. I'm not putting myself maybe in some sort of weird jeopardy or uncomfortable situation. I can just click it off. And and of course, we had the pandemic. You know, so when you know that uh, was harder for people to to meet. Though certainly, of course, they were. Um, I mean, I can see the appeal of that. I can see the appeal of like you know, as I jokingly call, you know, having sexy, sexy talk with somebody that's, that's kind of like fun, right? It's, it involves your brain. I mean, what, that's like the, what is it? So there's some saying about that, like the sexiest part of 
of a person's body is between their two ears because they're... Oh, yeah. The most erotic organ is between your ears or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because you're, no, you're, creating true. you're creating it. And that's, you know, we want to work hard. This is a thing. People don't want to be lazy. They don't want to just like come and be like completely serviced all the time. Well, I'm sure there are some people <laughs> that like no. that. But, um, uh, you know, you, you, can, you can create what you want. He or she on the other end of the line is maybe doing the same thing. You guys are building some like really interesting fantasy together and maybe, you know, it makes you hot and maybe you go back and do it the next day. I definitely see the appeal of that. There, no doubt. No doubt. Um, Emily Witt is a, is a good writer. She's a magazine writer. Uh, she does a lot of long form pieces and, and, you know, she covers a lot of ground, uh, in a, in a, short period of time. And it's, it's, I found this to be a really interesting read. One of the lines that she has towards the end is that for single people, casual sex is not a glib lifestyle choice, but a serious attempt to be happy within a specific reality. I found that very interesting, but I do, because I do think there's a lot of this stuff that is, is going on because, because there are, we've changed the way we see the nature of relationships. Um, you asked me earlier, I can't remember if it was before our technical meltdown or not, if I really think families have changed, um, you know, or is that just an idea that gets floated? I mean, we, we, we are seeing a change in how people couple. I know that on the apps, there is a reluctance to, have commitment. There is an endless sense of availability. There is a lot more what I would call like chronic or long-term singlehood. And, you know, what are you going to do if you're someone like me who wants to have sex in their life, but is having trouble um, creating the kind of long-term relationship that might be a better, might be better ground for that. And, um, well, one thing she also says toward the end is she said she wanted to stay open to any proposition that might be interesting. And uh, okay, I mean, I, I can agree with that with like in terms of ideas, right? Any proposition that might be interesting. Yeah. Or like any new color or food, it might be interesting. But I'm not, I'm not sure in terms of relationships, whether you're like changing what you want, your sexuality, your ideas about sex, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it seems to me then it's like you can have a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of little possibilities that you could explore, or you could have a few big ones that you explore. And, and having like the endless choice on the buffet, I, I don't know how satisfying that is. Again, that's subjective. I know. That's for I know. me, right? No, I, want, I like, know. This is something I've been dealing with over the last few years because I think I was living in a little bit of a, of a buffet lifestyle. I would not have said I chose that. I would have said it kind of happened to me. But one of the things I noticed is that I would have these beautiful, short interactions. They were mostly not intercourse related, but they were, you know, they were playful. I'm a little bit of a makeout slut. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it, it's true. I, I, I want to bring back the makeout. I want to bring back the, I've been trying to bring back the makeout for a long time. It is underrated. I, I will People tell you, don't talk about it. I, I am right with you. I am a big supporter of the makeout doorways, parties, basketball games. It's I'm just there. so I'm exciting. I, I love making out. I love it. You know who else loved making out? Elvis Presley. Oh, well, 
there we go. But not, but sex, not so much. He did not like <laughs> sex so much. He would, somebody called him the king of foreplay. <laughs> um, well, Sarah Hepler, we have bumped up upon oh, our, my goodness. our time. I think, who knows? We, we're not really sure. <laughs> we're going to get out of this. We had some, we had, like, living we, in know, we, had, we had two technical difficulties. Um, but I did want to get to just a little tiny bit of housekeeping. I went on to the Smoke em If You Got Em Substack, which obviously you guys know about it because you're here listening to it. And there's like an about page. Um, I changed a few things on there. And one thing we updated is that um, we've done a few paywalled episodes. We don't want to. Well, Sarah doesn't want to. I'd be the mean. Uh, I'd be the meaner person. She Nancy pre- is our strict oh, yeah. mom, and I, I need know. everyone to know this. I That's am the right. pushover mom that will secretly give you another cookie behind her back. That, well, but who Play made the us against uh, each other? But uh, she's uh, the who, one that made them. Made Let's the be cookies. clear. <laughs> Speaking of cookies, anyway, um, I changed some things in there. Right now, you're it's um it's seven dollars a month, seven dollars. A year or anything over $70, you can type in whatever you want to support us. I put 250. That's just suggested. Do what you want. But if you do become a paying subscriber, here's what you can get. You can get three extra episodes a month. Right now we're doing two episodes a week. You're going to get three extra episodes and they'll kind of be like special episodes. We've got a couple of ideas what we want to talk about. And um, we're also going to try to do monthly um, Zoom meetups. We did one during Depp Herd and that was really successful. People really liked it. And if you do, if you do give us a little chunk of money, I think I'm going to send you some cookies. So I'm just saying that's the incentive plan for today. Oh, people, we got cookies um, on the table. But I, I, that's cookies on the table. I will say I, I'm really heartened. We're getting a lot of people subscribing and I absolutely love it. So um, if you want to become a paid subscriber, I would love it even more. And um, and tell your friends about it because that's, uh, that's how word gets out. Um, okay, Sarah Hepla, stay cool. Um, I'm going to do my best to do that here. Um, Nancy um, Rommelman, stay hot. Uh, I can't help it. Uh, can't uh, help it. <laughs> okay. Bye, everybody. Bye. Life and day is more.